Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Last week, we worked our way officially into the Warring States period. We finally did it. No more questions. We are in the Warring States period. And last week, I said that this episode would look more into the conflicts, the wars, the moves on the metaphorical chessboard. But I've decided that there is no better time than now to talk about something else. And that something else being the ideas and the philosophies that shaped this period and, in turn, shaped the rest of our story. You're probably sitting back thinking, look, Eric, philosophies are great, but they can't really affect anything that much. But no, trust me, they do. I had mentioned this a while back, but the fact is, ancient China to this point, and more or less for the rest of its history from now, never really had a centralized religion in the Western sense. While they obviously believed in the mandate of heaven and they were very spiritualistic, there really was not a god, or gods, as Western civilizations like Rome had, or Greece had. No Chinese leader here was trying to convert people. He wasn't invading other people because his god was better. And there was no theology in our Western sense that they used to make the laws or to run their states. There wasn't like a book that said, okay, Chinese dynasty leader, here is how you govern the food intake. Can't eat fish on this day, that's wrong. And here is the circumcision rules for the rest of society. No, that's not at all what happened. It's these philosophies, though, that would in turn affect how the leaders of the time saw the world, conducted themselves, and in a time of 360 degrees of conflict, of course, it affected how they fought. This is all really vague right now. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 14, The Warring States Period, Part 2, 100 Schools. When things are good, things tend to change slowly. And really, why wouldn't they? If it's a prosperous and peaceful time, no one is really going to go out of their way to rethink everything. You know the old expression, don't need to fix what's not broken. But the opposite happens when things get rough. Everyone everywhere begins to question everything. If you don't believe me, think generally of your own life. The biggest changes to the world around you always tend to be after something went array. Whether it was policy-wise, or economics-wise, or war-wise, it could be any of them. Think pre-9-11 to post-9-11. Think of all the changes in worldviews, or about our privacy, or about the role of the U.S. military and how we conduct ourselves. All of that stuff, these questions and these thoughts and these critiques that had not been asked for a long time, were now being asked. And not only that, were being acted upon. Or even look outside in this last month. Bad times and bad events spurn new thoughts, spurn new action. So when the entire ancient Chinese realm burst into endless and really brutal and extremely destructive war, it shouldn't surprise us that in step with all of this, tons of new worldviews started popping up. As a quick reminder, this is not just me finding something to fill content with. No. I could tell you all about the armies, it's not that I didn't study on that, but the fact is that the Warring States period is often referred to as the 100 Schools period by those at that time, because the fact is, 
So many new and different and honestly game-changing schools of thought came about during this period. So while, yes, there is a lot of war, there is also a lot of new philosophical and legal thinking. But okay, enough beating around the bush. You all want to know what the schools of thought are. Well, the big three here that I'm going to talk about today are Taoism, Confucianism, and the most insane lab rat of human society ever, in my opinion, legalism. The last time we talked about anything resembling religion, or at least the metaphysical, it was like, what? Episode 4? So yeah, it's been a while. And in that episode, I talked about the oracle bones. Remember those? They would heat up the bones, they would inscribe something on them, and then would interpret what the cracks meant. Sort of the old magic eight ball of ancient China. But that kind of thought system is what we now would file under the category of shamanistic. River spirits, dragon bones, etc. It's all more shamanistic. As you might have gathered, I have not talked about these practices for quite a while, and it's not that I'm trying to suppress them or avoid talking about them. No, not at all. But it's because of the quickly growing and modernizing states by this point, we're beginning to turn away a little bit from those ritualistic practices if they had not totally abandoned them already. But that does not mean there were not people who still practiced them avidly, though. And we have seen through old historical documents and archaeological digs that many in the frontier areas, or the rural areas, still practiced these more shamanistic beliefs, and would continue to do so for quite a long time. So what about the new stuff, though? Well, the first one I'm going to dive into today is Taoism. And I wanted to talk about this one first for a couple reasons. First off, at least living in the West, it's one of the most unknowingly referenced Chinese ways of thought. Albeit, yeah, it's often wrongly interpreted, but still. You might have heard some dude or girl in the hallway at school or at work say, Hey, it's just yin and yang, man. Yeah, that's a massive facet of Taoism. Oh, and by the way, that's the Mandela effect at work. People in the West often say ying and yang, as in Y-I-N-G and yang. But really, it's yin and yang, just Y-I-N. But nonetheless, yin and yang is a huge facet of Taoism. But also, we briefly touched on it, it being Taoism, during our looks into Sun Tzu and the art of war. Because Taoism was one of the facets about the art of war that cast a small amount of doubt onto whether or not Sun Tzu really wrote it at all. Or if he was even real, because no one really knows when the core Taoist principles were set. We know about the time they were, but not exactly, because many feel it definitely happened after Sun Tzu would have been writing during the Wu state expansion. Furthermore, regardless of the timing issues, Taoist thought is the backbone of the art of war. So regardless of if he was real or not or what time it was, Taoism plays a huge part in that book. And it's why so many people in the West who don't understand at least what Taoism is might miss some of the point that the art of war laid out. So buckle up. Taoism. Like most things, dates here are going to be really sketchy if not just totally unknown. And also, before we dive in farther, it's also known as Taoism, with a D. 
And I apologize for not calling it that in the first place, because the Chinese name for Taoism or Taoism is Dao Jiao, roughly translating to, quote, the way, end quote. Taoism is generally confirmed to have entered the stage by around 400 BC. Though again, there are legitimate claims that it might have existed earlier, though this is muddled by the fact that Taoism, or Taoism, whatever you want to call it, based a lot of its foundation on earlier texts and thought processes. No, I don't mean earlier as in earlier in the Zhou Dynasty. No, I mean earlier as in way earlier, like 1100 BC earlier. And while I said Taoism may be new, it is by no means a 180 of prior understandings. They didn't just say, okay, we're going to do the opposite of what we're doing right now. Because the fact is, it shares many of the thoughts and understandings that Confucius had himself, though Taoism is less keen on his strict social system. On that, by the way, Confucianism had, well, Confucius. Did Taoism have somebody named Tao? No. But there was an important person in the foundation of Taoism. Born between the year 600 and 350 BC, Lao Tzu is generally thought of as the father of Taoism. Yeah, we won't be celebrating his birthday with much certainty. But he was born, though, in, get this, the Chu state. Lao Tzu, the name we know him by, means old master though it is stipulated that his real name, according to Sima Qian, was Li Er, L-I-E-R. Like Confucius, he was saddened by the times and sought to figure out more on the human condition. Now, according to our old pal Sima Qian, Lao Tzu and Confucius actually met at one point, maybe even several times. Sima Qian stated that they met to discuss rituals and etiquette, and I want to believe this. I know, I really do. It would be like in the year 4200, we told our kids that Eddie Van Halen and Mozart met to discuss music theory. To an ear from then, the dates would indeed kind of blend together. And on top of that, we don't really know when Lao Tzu was born. So yes, it's possible. But of the possible years Lao Tzu could have been alive, the chances he was alive at that specific window that would have allowed him to meet Confucius is extremely small. And on top of that, it's even more dubious that they met at all, and even more dubious that Sima Qin claims to know what they discussed. Personally, this feels more like a fan fiction account of the two greatest thinkers of all time. I want to believe they met. I really, really do. But the fact is, chance-wise, they did not. But nonetheless, Lao Tzu's oldest texts that have been recovered are from around the late 4th century B.C., Now, these were not original. No, these were copies. But the fact is, the oldest one we could find was late 4th century, essentially confirming the fact that we probably didn't have some great reunion of the two best thinkers of the time. And on Lao Tzu, though, he too might not have existed. (sighs) Again. Yeah, I know. I know. But the fact is, no one mentions him in any documents until... Yes, Sima Qian. Again, for the second time, we have an important character that might not have existed. And Sima Qian making up a character would be like me starting a podcast on about the Renaissance, maybe 600 years before, and then just creating a person to explain a whole large and diffuse idea. Ah, it's it's tough because you want to believe Lao Tzu existed, but did he really? 
uh, it's tough. And I really don't know. But more on Taoism. So while Lao Tzu may have written the core values of Taoism and thought about them and compiled them, the fact is Taoism has several main doctrines and they go as follows. There is the Ran, which is a key facet of the belief system. It essentially analyzes the state of everything, the, quote, primordial state of everything, end quote. To attain naturalness, in what Lao Tzu said, one has to identify with the Tao. This involves freeing oneself from selfishness and desire, and appreciating simplicity. The next big doctrine is that of Tao and Te. Now, this doctrine is more about the metaphysical, and in its own words, talks about the, quote, flow of the universe, end quote. This doctrine asserts that the Tao itself is something that any person can find imminent in themselves, but that it, the Tao, can and should be cultivated by oneself. Essentially saying the seeds are there, but you have to cultivate it on your own. But it's the next doctrine that holds more weight in the field of war and politics, which of course, in the Warring States period, is going to hold a lot of weight. This doctrine, the Three Treasures, call for the abstention from aggressive war and capital punishment, absolute simplicity of living, and refusal to assert active authority. So it's no surprise that in a time of immense war, selfish war, aggressive war, that a thought system would have popped up saying, we shouldn't be doing this. It kills people, and it really accomplishes nothing. And all of these doctrines I just mentioned are inherently tied to cosmology, and many Taoist thinkers sooner after this affirmed all of this. So, we're in the Warring States period, I'm telling you what was more or less in the lexicon of Taoism at the time, because of course Taoism is still around today, and there have been lots of, maybe not big changes, but some additions nonetheless. But nonetheless, it's the cyclical nature of being is where our yin and yang falls into place here. Humans are just a small part of the universe, and in this spirit, the universe is seen as being in a constant process of recreating itself as everything that exists is a mere aspect of qi, which, quote, condensed becomes life. Diluted, it is indefinite potential, end quote. So essentially, to understand oneself, one must understand the universe. That is the Taoist way of thinking. Look, if you want to learn more, I will put up better sources on the website, dormroomhistory.com, you know where to find it, but the fact is, I'm not even a historian, let alone an expert in theology or philosophy. So I'm just going to give you the backbone here of what you need. But actually, wait, there is one more doctrine of Taoism, but this is the one that connects us to Confucianism. Because these hundred schools are hardly diametrically opposing thought processes. And they are closer really to just schisms of each other than they are to being full-fledged opposites. And this doctrine is the Wu Wei. Now, the Wu Wei concept translates to, quote, effortless action or inexertion. And sinologist Harry Creel considers Wu Wei, as found in the Tao Te Ching and Zhuangzi, which we will get to, to denote two different things. One, quote, an attitude of genuine non-action, motivated by a lack of desire to participate in human affairs, end quote. And two, quote, 
a technique by means which the one who practices it may gain enhanced control of human affairs, end quote. Now, the first line is quite in line with the contemplative Taoism of the Zhuangzi and other Taoist books. Described as a source of serenity in Taoist thought, only rarely do you see Taoist texts suggest that ordinary people could gain political power through the Wu Wei. Essentially, it was saying that the leader was of a higher power. Was that power God? No. More or less a better understanding of the universe. But it's the second line, though, that is taken from more of a legalist thought which we will get to later this episode. And lastly, to understand Taoism, Taoism has several texts. There is no God figure, no holy story, no Bible. There instead exist these texts that implore one how to live and how to view the universe around them. So the text that is arguably most important to Taoism is the Tao Te Ching. And this is the one that was written by Lao Tzu, or not written by him, depending on what you believe, and yeah, its origins too are a mystery. There is no publishing date, but the earliest version excavated from a dig site, as I mentioned, is from the 4th century BC. Anyway, the Tao Te Ching holds the most importance, and it almost is ritualistically viewed at this point. It's pretty much the most important thing to Taoism, and that's debatable, but that's more or less what people believe. The leading themes of it revolve around the nature of Tao and how to obtain it. Tao is said to be ineffable and accomplishing great things through small means. But a big issue with this whole thing, though, is translation. There are simply words that exist in some languages that don't in others. So fully understanding this text for non-ancient Chinese experts is a challenge. Because every word makes a difference. You change one word and the whole meaning changes. But nonetheless, the opening lines of the Tao Te Ching are Tao Ke Tao Fei Chang Tao The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. Ming Ke Ming Fei Chang Ming The name that can be named is not the eternal name. How about that? Now that Yes, the translation might be a little off, but that's, that's some really cool stuff. But the next Taoist text is the Zhuangzi, which is named right after its author, Zhuangzi. It's not really an original text, though. It's more similar to the Five Classics by Confucius because it is really a composite of tons of other writings from tons of other sources, but it helps explain how one can align themselves with the way, i.e. Taoism, and with the natural world. And lastly, of the texts from around this period, and yes, again, there are more Taoist texts that pop up later in the history of China, but this one was the Yi Qing. The Yi Qing was not new, not even for this ancient time in the Warring States period. We had mentioned it in episode 10 because this was one of the five classics. This was the Book of Changes. The fact is, the Yi Qing, or Yi Jing, was originally a divination system that had its origins around 1150 BC. So it predates anything Taoist. But this book talks about the 64 original notations of the hexagrams in the Yi Qing, and they can also be read as a meditation on how change occurs. 
so it assists Taoists or Taoists with managing yin and yang cycles as Lao Tzu advocated for in the Tao Te Ching. So this is all coming together for Taoism right around the fall of the Jin state. But it wasn't just Taoism, because at the same time, Confucianism also had this moment. The regular listeners here know about the life of Confucius. But we also know that he didn't really start his namesake philosophy or religion, if you want to call it that, by himself. Instead, it was his followers that really centralized the belief system. Born in the state of Zhou in modern-day Shangdong in 385 BC, Meng Zi would forever change Confucius' teachings from a diffuse thought process to more or less what we see today. Meng Zi is known as the second sage, second only to the OG himself, Confucius. He was part of about the fourth or fifth generation of Confucian scholars, and like Confucius before him, Meng Zi traveled around the Chinese realm, but unlike Confucius, he wasn't searching for a virtuous leader. No. Instead, instead Meng Zi would offer counsel to these rulers. Because a key belief of his was that humans are innately good, but that this quality of them requires cultivation and the right environment to flourish. He also taught that rulers must justify their position of power by acting benevolently towards their subjects. And in this sense, they are subordinate to the masses. So you see what I mean now about how these belief systems affect the rulers and the people of the day because, well, their actions are literally greatly influenced by these belief systems. You have a leader in a state that's listening to Meng Tzu, he's going to have a totally different worldview and going to act completely different than somebody who has a different belief system. And Meng Tzu's interpretation of Confucianism has generally been considered the orthodox version by which subsequent Chinese philosophers adhere to. And look, of course, the five classics are a staple. But it is the Analects that are the canon of Confucianism, at least in many people's eyes. So during the Warring States period, the Analects, or otherwise known as the Analects of Confucius, were compiled by his followers though it would not be for some time until the Analects reached the level of canonization that the five classics did. Regardless, the centralization of Confucianism during this period changes everything. Yes, Confucianism was very close to Taoism, sharing beliefs in the cyclical nature of the universe, yin and yang. However, Confucianism held a very strict social code, loyalty, filial piety, and social harmony rang out much louder for Confucianism than it did for Taoism. Because the Junzi, or the Lord's Son, or otherwise translated to the gentleman, is one who may live in poverty. He does more and speaks less. He is loyal, obedient, and knowledgeable. The Junzi disciplines himself. And that is right out of Confucius' text. So that is how they view things. You listen. You do. You don't just speak and have a big mouth. You go and actually do it. You don't have to be from a rich family. You may live in poverty, but as long as you're loyal, obedient, and knowledgeable, and you do more, you are a gentleman. You are, for all intents and purposes, the Lord's son. And yeah, the Junza disciplines himself.
But in the Warring States period especially, leadership ideas were paramount. Yes, we might talk about the common folk and how this affects all of them, but one thing that rings out for a lot of these is how they talk about rulers, because there were a lot of them. There were seven states, plus the extras, plus the warlords, plus the aristocratic families, and they could all be viewed as the king of their small or large domain. So it's no surprise that a lot of these philosophies talk a lot about ruling. So as the potential ruler of a nation, the son of a ruler is raised to have a superior ethical and moral position while gaining inner peace through his virtue. To Confucius, the Junzi, or the gentleman, or the lord's son, sustained the functions of government and social stratification through his ethical values. So despite its literal meaning, any righteous man that was willing to improve himself may become a Junzi. But on the contrary, it was the Xiaoren, which directly translates to small person, but really is more or less saying a small and petty person, that person does not grasp the value of virtues, and they only seek immediate gains. The petty person is egotistic, and does not consider the consequences of his actions, and he does not consider the overall scheme of things. Should the ruler be surrounded by these Xiaoren, as opposed to the Juanzi, his governance and his people will suffer due to their small-mindedness. Examples of such Xiaoren individuals may range from those who continually indulge in sensual and emotional pleasures all day, all the way to the politician who is interested merely in power and fame. Neither sincerely aims for long-term benefit of others. You're starting to see here how important these philosophies really are. If a leader really adheres to this, completely clears out his administrative court, and all of his decisions are based with the long-term aim of benefiting others, you're going to have a lot different trajectory than one who doesn't. And let's say you have a court who believes all this, but the king doesn't, and the king doesn't want to have long-term benefit, but the court does, they're going to act upon that. Confucianism, like Taoism, is in no way finalized yet. However, its centralization and the polishing that occurred in this period are super important, and we will continue to check back in with its growth throughout the next couple episodes, and honestly, for quite a while, because Confucianism will continue to play a very important role in the history of China. But lastly, though, oh, my favorite, there was legalism. And wow, this is, this, this is a hard one to grasp. If you are a truly old-school fan of mine, you've heard of legalism. It was in the first 15 minutes of my first podcast ever. Legalism had the most dramatic short-term effect on where we are now. I mean, it was implemented very quickly and implemented with unbelievable ferocity. Known in Chinese as fa jia, the legalist mindset is the first organically grown concept of realpolitik in China, and honestly, debatably, even anywhere. It is what modern-day realists would have been back in the day. To them, to the legalists, that is, overt power was the ideology. Confucianism, commonly considered to be China's you know, biggest ethos, had articulated its opposition to the establishment of legal codes. 
and the earliest of which were inscribed on bronze vessels in the 6th century BC. Because for Confucians, the, the five classics provided the preconditions for knowledge. You don't need any laws, it's all right here in the five classics. And Orthodox Confucians tended to consider organizational details beneath the ruler and beneath the minister, and decided that those matters and those things were to be left to underlings. And furthermore, they wanted ministers to control the ruler, not rulers controlling the minister. The exact opposite happens in legalism. We have spent endless time so far talking about how way too powerful aristocratic families were sucking power away from centralized authorities, whether it was the duke of their state or the dynasty as a whole. But what about if someone snatched that power back? The Chu state was dealing with Taoism, but it was the Qin state, Q-I-N, that gave this whole legalist thing a go. So in 390 BC, within the Qin state, and you're getting the picture here, these are all happening within about 10, 15 years of each other. It is truly a crazy time to be alive. But nonetheless, in 390 BC in the Qin state, a character named Shang Yang is born. He became extensively the prime minister of the Qin state and decided to go on a kill streak with a, quote, comprehensive plan to eliminate the hereditary aristocracy, end quote. Quite the plan. Drawing boundaries between private factions and the central royal state, he took up the cause of meritocratic appointment, stating that, quote, favoring one's relative is tantamount to using self-interest as one's way, whereas that which is equal and just prevents selfishness from proceeding. So he deliberately produced equality of conditions amongst the ruled, a tight control of the economy, and he encouraged total loyalty to the state, including censorship and reward for denunciation. Law was what the sovereign commanded, and this meant absolutism. But it was an absolutism of law as impartial and impersonal. And it was the Qin state that would be rocking with legalism all the way to the end of the Warring States period. Essentially, what we're looking at here is a state that said, you do the rules, you do your part, and we'll all be happy. But if you don't, we're going to have some problems. And one of the big issues with legalism, and it's more or less a proverb, is what do you do if you do more? You know, you have your one job, you have your one rule, you have your one law in your position, but what if you decide to do the extra mile, work overtime? Well, as we'll see later, even that was a bad thing, because really it was just do your job and nothing else. Generally speaking, the fajia, or the legalist mindset, understood that the power of the state resides in social and political institutions. And the Qin state, in turn, were innovative in their aim to subject the state to them. In the words of Han Fei, the reasons why I discuss the power of position is for the sake of mediocre rulers. These mediocre rulers, at best they do not reach the level of the sages Yao or Shen, remember, five emperors, and at worst they do not behave like the arch tyrants Jie or Zhou. If they hold to the law and depend on the power of their position, there will be order. But if they abandon the power of their position and turn their backs on the law, there will be disorder. Now, if one abandons the power of position 
turns one's back on the law, and waits instead for a yao or a shen. Then when a yao or shen arrives, there will indeed be order. But it will only be one generation of order, in a thousand generations of disorder. Nevertheless, if anyone devotes his whole discourse to the sufficiency of the doctrine of position to govern all under heaven, the limits of his wisdom must be very, very narrow. End quote. Wow. First off, if you've listened to all the episodes, the Krupper King was mentioned, King Zhou, Yao and Shen were mentioned. I mean, remember, these were things I was telling you that would be important, and here they are being used to implement legal systems that would change the course of China. But by the end of its development, though, legalism essentially became a sort of system of enlightened absolutism. And trust me, we will be back with legalism quite soon. I know I've said that with all three so far, but legalism literally is being implemented as we speak. It's not centralizing, it's not being talked about to leaders, it is the system of the Qin state, and it was implemented quite quick. I think legalism is really interesting because it's sort of the, as Dan Carlin puts it, it's the lab rat experiment of what a human society can do. We had Sparta think of, okay, well, let's make a whole society based on creating a soldier, right? You have Janus societies that talk about being super pacifist. And here you have a state that is literally making law religion. Not religion into law. Do your job and do it well and do what you're told in your narrow scope and that is it. Essentially, it's saying that, look, and they were recognizing this by looking back, saying, look, we're in the Warring States period. We're here. We could wait for a King Yao or a King Shen. We could do that. That's essentially literally what he said. And the idea was that you could wait for them, but that's one generation of awesomeness, but the rest will just be like what we've been experiencing for the last, what, 400 years the Eastern Joe has been falling apart? So to them, the idea was if we all just keep our heads down, we all do our job, We'll be ready for a Yao or a Shen, but we'll also be able to weather the storm of the, you know, the disorder, the chaos, the bad rulers. So in the end, these ideas shaped the rulers of the day. They shaped the politics of the day. They shaped the militaries of the day. But in turn, they affect us even today. So next time you see a random dude with a yin-yang tattoo at the gas station, ask them about Taoism. They're probably experts. Jokes aside, there are probably a lot of people with that tattoo that don't know what it means. There will be more on these belief systems as they each individually rise to more importance at different times. Taoism will have a very important day. Confucianism will have a very important whole dynasty. But for now, I hope this episode provided you a good backbone of understanding for these sort of philosophies. Because yeah, they're not really religions. But I also hope it sparks more curiosity. Because I did not explain them totally thoroughly. I mean, there are people who spend their entire lives just looking at one of the texts of one of these religions or philosophies or whatever you want to call them. So I will have links on the website for anyone who wants to explore more, in case you do indeed want to learn more. And I implore you to do so. Because it's really, really, really interesting. So next week, where are we now? The states are set. And now the mindsets are set. So now it's time for war. 
And before I let you go, lastly, if you like the podcast, it would mean a lot if you give it a follow. And if you really love it, please share it with people who you feel would also like it. More listeners couldn't hurt. So thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next week on the history of China. Bye.